Well, hello, everyone. I'm very excited to be here today to talk about the latest Alzheimer's disease drug that slowed down the rate of cognitive decline in a phase three clinical trials in early Alzheimer's disease. We're always excited to hear any breakthrough. I mean, even though we've had so many um, failures and letdowns, um, to us, it's, it's, uh, it's about life and death because we see it in our clinic every single day. I think we've seen more than 15,000 patients, um, patients with mild cognitive impairment, with memory disorders, patients with early dementia. So many patients where we, for the first time, tell them what they have, the diagnosis. And to me, it never gets easy. It's the, it's the most difficult conversation. It's the most taxing, most um, troublesome, most anxiety-ridden, not just for the patient and family, for me. But I cherish the opportunity to be there to tell them the story in a way that's, you know, uh, keeps their dignity, empowers them to some extent, takes the worries a little bit as much as we can, although it's a degenerative disease, and where we, where we can do something, if it's early enough, you know, intervene with lifestyle and, and make a difference. But a great number of patients, we really can't. I mean, lifestyle has been shown to affect even um, Alzheimer's patients, but never reversing it. I know That's that true. there are some doctors out there making claims that they can reverse Alzheimer's and it's false and it's, it's cynical, it's, it's painful. <clears throat> there has never been evidence that uh, Alzheimer's can be reversed. And now we hear this new drug, at least actually for the last couple of years, we've been having some signals, some, some hope. Every time though, it was dashed by one reason or another, but, uh, but there's hope. And this one, more than the rest, there seems to be um, greater hope that it, it might be able to do something. Absolutely. So I think it would make sense to quickly describe what happened and then we can go back and give a history of how we actually got here yes. and go into some of the detail. So we're talking about Eli Lilly's uh, new uh, Alzheimer's drug. The name is Donanimab. And all of these medications have the letters MAB at their end, and that stands for monoclonal antibodies. So these are basically medications that alter our immune system and particularly the medications that are used in Alzheimer's disease, they target amyloid beta protein, the hardened plaques that are, that are toxic to the neuronal system in the brain, and they essentially get rid of them. I want to address this, um, this elephant in the room, which is um, for the last year or so, everybody thinks that the amyloid hypothesis is dead and we can abandon that whole pathway. And that's never been the case. Um, uh, media and um, certain type of media that wants to uh, create silos uh, makes exaggerated claims. The, the debunking of one series of science papers from 2006 does not you know, take away the, the hypotheses, they have amyloid hypotheses. Most of us didn't think that amyloid hypotheses or the fact that Alzheimer's is driven purely by, uh, by amyloid is the only reason for only cause of Alzheimer's. We, none of us believed it, but we know that it's a part of it. 
either it's downstream, meaning that other things happen and then amyloid starts making you know, the situation much worse. Now, it's not just amyloid, amyloid and tau, and we'll speak about that a little bit. Or the fact that in certain number, about three to five percent, it's the main driver, but uh, it, it's, it's always there. Uh, it's part of the picture. And we'll tell you from our perspective, and again, this is where we're extrapolating from the data. We think that these drugs have a place. Um, and, and the fact that this drug shows slowing and not reversal speaks to that pathology, that mechanism that we, we were talking about is that it has a place, uh, but it's not the end all be all. Right. That's right. And it all started with this whole controversy um, last year when, uh, you know, one of the um, very important papers that described the theory of amyloid beta protein and its relationship in Alzheimer's disease was challenged. And there were uh, some mistakes and errors that were published. And the journal essentially retracted those articles after some investigation. Uh, but like you said, um, it's it's still a very important aspect of Alzheimer's disease. Great. So this medication, this new medicine, donanimab, uh, the publication, uh, or at least the news came out earlier uh, last week, and Eli Lilly announced that they had positive results for the phase three clinical trials that looked at the effect of donanimab on cognitive impairment in a specified population. The name of the clinical trial was Trailblazers Alzheimer's, or ALZ, Trailblazer Alzheimer's 2. And um, essentially, um, the population uh, showed that uh, there was a significant slowing down of cognitive decline compared to those who were in, were in the placebo group. Um, the number of people that were studied, I'm just giving, throwing some numbers here. So the number uh, of individuals that were studied in this population were 1,182. And these were people who had intermediate levels of tau and clinical symptoms of early Alzheimer's disease. So it's important to know that they weren't, they weren't profoundly, you know, cognitively impaired. Correct. They just had some mild um, Alzheimer's disease. And um, the end point, so the things that they were keeping an eye on were specific cognitive testing or scores. And in this study, they looked at clinical dementia rating sum of boxes or CDR, SB. Mm -hmm. And they also looked at activities of daily living. You and I check activities of daily living in the clinic, right? I want you to expand on it and tell the audience what it essentially means. I mean, it's, it's actually a blunt measure of dementia. If somebody has difficulty with their activities of daily living. There are two types of activities of daily living. There's the basic activities of daily living, which is eating, um, um, uh, hygiene, um, um, going to the bathroom, walking, things of that nature. And then there's the instrumental activities of daily living, which is um, more complex. Answering the phone, buying groceries, driving, doing their finances, um, 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 do, uh, taking care of your own medications, things of that nature. And, and, and if somebody's instrumental activities of daily living is affected to the extent where they can't do one or more of those, by definition, that's dementia. I mean, we do more sophisticated testing to give us more data, but that's basically it. And especially if it's irreversible, if it's, especially it's not related to a delirium or a momentary um, uh, altered mental state, then it's dementia. 
<clears throat> of course, if it's the basic activities like eating and walking, and th that's more severe. But initially, it's the instrumental or more complex activities that are affected. Um, and that's something that always is uh, followed in the clinic and in research as well. So in this study, they, the, the particular numbers were um, that the individuals or the intervention group had a 35% slowing of cognitive decline. And 47% of them did not show any decline on the CDRSB or the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, which is incredible. And this was a key measure of disease severity at one year. So after one year, you know, they didn't really decline the way other individuals in the placebo group did. Um, they, you know, but most of the participants were able to complete the course of treatment by year one. And the study spanned 18 months. And that's a long enough time for us to measure specific changes in people's dementia scoring um, in, you know, say, for example, in 1,182 people, correct? Yeah. So in, in a study, I think the number of people and the duration of the intervention are very important aspects. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in, in most studies, I mean, I'm simplifying it, but basically um, uh, having taught this uh, to many students, there are three major factors. Your, your, your tool, the tool that measures change. Um, if it's sensitive enough, then you need less numbers and less time to right. really uh, rely on its validity. Um, uh, it's more complex than that. If, if the number of people involved is fairly large, that gives you ability to kind of uh, say that this is um, uh, working, and, and especially if you divide into those that get the treatment and those that don't. Uh, and then length of time. Those are your three things that really matter uh, significantly. And in this case, 18 months is pretty good, and then the cognitive testing uh, is valuable because they also did imaging and MR, uh, MRI and other tests. And um, and um, and the population size was pretty good as well. So yes. all three variables were the boxes were checked. So this is a fairly robust study. Exactly. One of the things that I found very interesting, and I'm glad that they did that, was in addition to measuring um, their cognition and their functional decline, they also looked at brain amyloid plaque levels. Correct. So they looked at the levels at uh, month six and at year one. And they found out, and how do they do that? They do that with amyloid PET scans. So amyloid PET scans are essentially CT scans that highlight amyloid protein in the brain. So you can tell whether there's change in amyloid load before and after the intervention. Correct. There are these ligands, they call that bind it's a radioactive, but it's very low uh, activity, bind to the amyloid, and then you can actually see them on, on PET scan. Exactly. And the numbers were, um, they were impressive. So many of the patients reached amyloid levels considered negative for pathology. Remarkable. 34% of the participants achieved amyloid clearance at six months, and 71% achieved clearance at 12 months. And so you know, this kind of going hand in hand with slowing of cognitive decline tells us that the amyloid theory still exists and it's important. And for us to have such measures where you look at the neuropsychological testing scores and then you correlate that 
with amyloid load with imaging. That's impressive, isn't it? It is. It speaks to the amyloid involvement, but also indirectly kind of might hint to the fact that the fact that it wasn't reversing disease might hint to the bigger picture beyond amyloid. Before we go on, let me just review the amyloid process. So in, in all of us, there are these uh, proteins that actually traverse the membrane of neurons, cells. There are many proteins that are traversing the membrane of cells, uh, both glial cells and, and neurons. So these are the different cells in, in the brain, the central Correct. nervous system. Exactly. And then in neurons, uh, this APP, uh, which is a transmembrane uh, protein, has multiple functions and is usually cut and eliminated and the body gets rid of it and normally. And that, but sometimes what happens is, what happens is this, these abnormal uh, enzymes called, called beta-secretase and gamma-secretase actually cut the um, uh, protein, uh, the transmembrane protein in the wrong place and it creates uh, A-beta-42 and these variants, 42, 41, 40, and, and others as well, which then the body, it hangs around in a liquid form and the, the fluid and, and still not a problem. Even normal aging, you see amyloid and, and even uh, amyloid clumps, but you see amyloid in the brain. But what happens is as time goes along, especially patients with Alzheimer's, these amyloid, um, um, uh, soluble amyloid actually clumps down. It, it binds and becomes these pla you know, uh, plaques and, and, and uh, extracellular plaques and they become toxic. They start damaging the communication between cells. They actually become almost like infectious because these, these clumps seed other clumps and they affect other cells and start killing cells. And the mechanism is more, is more complex. This is where inflammation and everything else is involved. But nonetheless, <clears throat> in these patients, <clears throat> sorry, in these early patients, they were able to clear amyloid before it ever became clumps. And that was enough to slow down progression, not necessarily reverse it, not necessarily go back to normal, but slow down and uh, the progression. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, so slowing down of cognitive decline happened. 47% um, of them, which is nearly half of the participants, had no clinical progression at one year. And, you know, they set off specific endpoints and they met all of them, whether they were primary endpoints and secondary endpoints. And this medication seemed to work, to have worked better compared to the one that was um, released last year, lecanemab. Yes. Um, so it seems that, you know, scientists are actually kind of fine tuning and specifically finding out, you know, what are some of the specific mono monoclonal antibodies that are affecting amyloid load. So overall, I think this is good news. Um, I want you to discuss what the next steps are. So what does this mean yeah. to patients who have the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease? What does this mean for patients who have uh, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease? Because the most important thing that we can do is communicate the results properly to the, to the public and for them to not to have, you know, uh, unmanageable expectations. Well, one big part of it is the side effects. In the past, <clears throat> whenever you removed amyloid, it wasn't without side effect. There are, you know, one of the major side effects was bleeds. There were usually small micro bleeds, but there were enough to accumulate um, and cause damage. And in some cases, even death. Even in this case, there were three deaths. Um, uh, I mean, the number is small compared to the 
denominator to the bigger population, but still <clears throat> three deaths during the study. And not all of that could be attributed to this drug or the situation, but you still assign this, you take the worst case scenario and you record it as such, um, as a, a serious adverse event. Um, and other drugs, the, the response was minimal. The, the effect was not really clinically meaningful. And the side effects were much worse as far as bleeding is concerned, brain shrinkage is concerned, all of these things was much worse. So in this case, it was actually less so. There was some micro bleeds and, and there, like I said, there were three deaths. But in the bigger picture of a devastating disease like this, which had no treatment before, and, and the fact that whenever you do a clinical trial, you, you do have these adverse offense, events that are not necessarily attributable to the drug, but you still record it. This was actually a great success. That's right. That's right. Yes, and, and so the next steps for this means to do it in a larger population, to see the true effect, to, to do it in a, lo a longer period. You actually, FDA will most likely approve this, and, and then we will bring it into the clinical practice. Um, and then that's where the challenge arises, because this is an IV drug, which means it's that the patients infusion, come, infusion right. yeah. Patients come in, you have to identify them. You can't give it to late onset disease because that's, that's not been proven for late onset. And, I, and I'm sure that's going to be challenged by some doctors because the, the, the desperation of the disease. That's true, yeah. Um, the expense of it, um, if insurance covers it, it's, it's going to be expensive. I mean, lecanemab uh, uh, was... Um, uh, Close to about twenty four to twenty five thousand dollars. I mean, initially insane. actually fifty something thousand dollars, and then so it, the expense is going to be a limiting factor if if, if Medicare Medicaid covers it. That's going to be a tremendous expense, but but that's something that as a society, as a com, uh, country, uh, uh, we should definitely consider given the devastating nature of this disease. Um, and then what we will do is learn from this experience. We see who responds. We look at the other paraphenomenon, the genetics, the uh, other lifestyle variables, <clears throat> and see who responds better, who responds less. And, and at the same time, this opens the door for others to do this kind of uh, trials with other drugs with certain variations to see if there is any improvement in this. That's right. That's right. That, those are you and I, I think we believe that there's more to it than just amyloid. We know that tau is the bigger driver of disease, and there are trials going on for drugs that um, uh, would affect tau. Now, tau is a protein that's intracellular and it stabilizes microtubules. Imagine microtubules being these scaffoldings that hold cells, neurons uh, uh, together. They're also uh, for transport. And there are these clamps that hold them together. They, these are the tau. And all of a sudden they're phosphorylated. They come off and then they become clumps and these scaffoldings fall apart. And, and by the way, they're also almost like infectious. I'm using infectious in a, uh, in a different sense because we've seen that when you take these tau products and put them next to other cells, this actually, this process transmits into other cells. Um, so that's another protein that we're looking at. And, and it's the one that's been more um, powerfully, more significantly been associated with the disease process the end-stage disease process. So that's a door that will be opened up by this as well. We're optimistic. In both cases, we think they're going to significantly affect disease course, but we think that it's not going to be a therapy. Therapy is going to be something that's going to have to be done earlier, 
maybe even at amyloid and tau level, but much, much earlier, because as we've said many times, this disease starts 10, 15, 20 years earlier. That's so true, yes. The other thing that needs to be done is identify the earliest signs of disease. Who's at risk? And to implement uh, therapy earlier. Now, you can't give somebody who doesn't have any signs of disease but is at risk, let's say, ApoE4 person or even an APP person, which are the higher-risk people or the um, presenal and one and presenal and two people, which are 100% uh, penetrant, meaning that they will definitely develop disease. But you can't start giving them IV medication 10 years before they have disease, not only because of the cost, but because of the burden on their life. But um, better identification is going to be um, quite helpful. Better delivery methods other than infusion is going to be helpful. Uh, better therapies, combination therapies. We think that it's a combination of anti-inflammatory um, as well as early vascular intervention as well as these drugs of amyloid and tau. As you the, um, uh, did a, a presentation on this, that the vascular markers of disease, even for Alzheimer's, start earlier than amyloid oh, markers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I, we think that lifestyle still will have a profound uh, place, important place in this uh, disease process, not just for Alzheimer's, for all neurodegenerative diseases, definitely for vascular diseases, um, so uh, it has to be a combination approach. But I want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of camps. In social media and even in scientific world, now there are camps of the lifestyle doctors and the pharmaceutical doctors and the molecular bud doctors and so on and so forth and geneticists. It's not going to be camps. All of this is going to work together. We just have to figure out where and how much and when all of these will be implemented. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. I think I wanted to keep that line for the end, but you used it in the middle of the conversation. No, no. <laughs> this is, is beautiful. middle end and uh, uh, beginning. I guess it's that's all the, the same. theme. That's the yeah. theme. Absolutely. I think we should embrace nuance. Um, you know, I have said things in the past that were um, incorrect and not very accurate. And I think just looking and reading and listening to other individuals and being in the realm of science, the one thing that I've learned is, first of all, never ever to make conclusive statements. Um, always be very cautious and circumspect Yes, and use words that would allow for that statement to be changed later on because change is human and change is science and that's at the core of progress. The most humble, and I think probably the, the only humble mechanism I know is science. Because good science never uh, stands on absolute terms. And that's not a weakness. That's a strength. Look how we have moved forward with this partial correct vector uh, and correction mechanisms that never were absolute, but it has ended up giving us incredible therapies, incredible science, incredible, uh, not just in the realm of health, but in all realms of science. It's, it's this, uh, this intrinsic, um, self-correcting, uh, humble uh, process that, that's given us uh, um, progress. And in, in, in Alzheimer's, by the way, this is not just for Alzheimer's. Now, these proteins that we were talking about, amyloid and tau, and other diseases like Lewy body disease, similar kind of proteins. It's alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's alpha-synuclein. 
and, and frontotemporal lobe dementia as tau and, and other proteins as well. So the mechanisms are going to be able, this mechanism is going to be able to be translated into other diseases as well. Uh, and we're excited about that. Absolutely. Um, I'm excited that, you know, we have these new technologies that are being developed, but at the same time, um, there's a little bit like, and you, you touched on this, there's a, there's a little bit of a concern that I have that I hope that this excitement in the discovery of these incredible treatments does not take away the focus and the, um, well, let me use very specific words, grant funding <laughs> for prevention of Alzheimer's disease or um, investigating further the role of vascular risk factors and modifiable risk factors during midlife. Yesterday, I you know, posted, you, you and I both posted something on Instagram, and we were talking about the importance of addressing uh, markers of cholesterol abnormalities or lipid metabolism abnormalities during midlife. Um, and that is such an incredible and a fascinating relationship to, to see how the vascular markers that we have or the genetic, um, the genetic proclivities that we have and the exposures, the environmental exposures that we carry on with us, how do they over time change our biology, affect our arteries, affect our neurons, affect our you know, chemistry? And this disease that is overwhelming, Alzheimer's disease or dementia in general, the neurodegenerative categories, that they essentially start during midlife. And how, when we fix things, when we address these risk factors and provide the right kind of an environment, whether internal or external for individuals, they're able to slow down that process. I wish and I hope that the limelight of this you know, the donanumab and all the monoclonal antibodies doesn't take away from the funding and the importance of addressing risk factors during midlife. I, I suspect that it will to some extent because the, the mechanisms of how the lifestyle factors actually profoundly contribute to Alzheimer's is clear. I mean, we know that the amyloid, the, the, insol the soluble amyloid becoming insoluble amyloid is a big factor because it's not just amyloid. Even if you look at normal aging, there's an amyloid accumulation, liquid amyloid. And if you look at the cerebral spinal fluid, you have amyloid there. But, but something happens that pushes the disease towards pathology. Um, now, that we've known that even things like blood pressure increase your risk of Alzheimer's by 20%. Cholesterol by more than 50%. How? How? Well, we think that, just to play around here, one, uh, and there's some evidence to this, that there might be a relationship between how uh, um, um, APOE4 and cholesterol um, deposition um, uh, extracellularly, but also how it's uh, processed in the brain affects the clumping of amyloid from an insoluble to a soluble. How increased inflammation as a result of a poor lifestyle or from uh, insulin resistance can have an effect on this process of going from insoluble amyloid to soluble amyloid. So there definitely is a multidimensional approach to this, a multidimensional component to this, and not just a monosyllabic, a singular amyloid process. Um, the data is just, I mean, profound. That uh, Otherwise, why would it be that something like nutrition would reduce your risk of 
going into dementia and Alzheimer's by more than 50%. This is not just young people. Studies where people who've been diagnosed with clear MCI, clear mild cognitive impairment, which have a higher risk of going to Alzheimer's, those with regular diet and those with a particular diet, which is mind diet and others, they, there was a f- more than 53% reduction in going into Alzheimer's because of diet. How? And especially at that advanced stage, uh, it's pre-Alzheimer's, but still it's right at the edge. How? It's because we think that inflammation and lipid dis- deposition and, and uh, insulin resistance contributes to this you know, uh, uh, cascade of amyloid and cascade of tau. And that's obvious, that's clear. We have to clarify it better. But the uh, reality is that uh, uh, there, there should be more uh, funding given to lifestyle. Absolutely. Well, I hope, I hope we can spread this information and I hope we can speak about this over and over again. And um, I, in many ways, I see history repeating itself almost, you know, where uh, for a while when, um, when we would go to, say, for example, the Alzheimer's Association International Conference or the American Academy of Neurology, I remember back in the 2000s, the, the late 2000s and the early 2000 teens, like 12, 13, 14, this whole neuroimaging, the flood of studies from neuroimaging came and everybody actually found out more about the deposition of amyloid beta protein and how early onset Alzheimer's disease, uh, you know, changed the brain and how people who have a history of late onset Alzheimer's dementia in their family members actually saw some changes earlier in their 40s and 50s. It was all about imaging, 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 and specifically focusing on amyloid. Now that we've found a treatment for it, I feel like it's almost like a deja vu. We're kind of going back to those days where everybody's entirely focused on amyloid. But I get it. I mean, this is a very, very exciting. I don't want to take away the excitement away from it. But like you said, hopefully we can also point out the importance of early lifestyle intervention and prevention of cognitive decline related to amyloid uh, deposition, related to vascular damage and all of that. So all I'm saying is I hope that the scientists that are involved in the decision-making of what money should be spent on NIH what area, and, yeah. NIH, they don't forget the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, that's the message of the day. Great. So, so now that we have this uh, medication and now that we continue to understand better how amyloid deposition and this, these hardened plaques work in the brain, um, I think the public has, um, has hope. You know, people who actually have the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease, there is some hope for them. Um, people who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, hopefully with all the information that is being disseminated, they have a better understanding of what they should be doing. There's also a level of hopelessness because um, this might not be available in the market right away, right? Um, Because of the cost, because of Medicare not approving it. And most of these individuals who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s might not get it right away. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think it might be fast-tracked by FDA. I mean, like the previous drug was fast-tracked, maybe too too fast. You're talking about Aduhelm? Uh, Aduhelm. But this might be fast-tracked, but the data is better. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe this year or early next year, um, we might see it in the market. So I'm, I'm more optimistic in that sense. But I want to also give a caution as far as its side effects. Although 
these side effects seem nominal. Uh, there's always long-term side effects. They call it phase four, when the drug is in the market and now tens of thousands of people have tried it, then you see different kind of profile as far as side effects. We still have to be careful. I mean, recently, a paper showed that uh, these MABs also cause shrinkage of the brain. Um, so what is that about? Uh, there's, we should still be cautious, just nature of science, and, and we should definitely um, keep an eye on, on uh, other side effects as well. Um, uh, but but at, at the same time, um, I think uh, the general public, the reason we're making this talk is because most people just know us for public health and prevention, prevention, prevention. And we keep telling people we are, we are on both sides of, of, the, of, the, of the field. It's, we're, we're not against medication when done right, when, uh, when used properly. We're not against molecular science and molecular research on humans um, because it, it's relevant to humans. Um, uh, but at the same time, prevention is critical. So we, call, we say that, uh, well, I mean, this is somewhat blunt, 80% prevention, 20% definitely towards treatment and disease, um, whether it's cancer, whether it's um, uh, heart disease, whether it's diabetes, and, and definitely cognitive diseases. But there are diseases that lifestyle doesn't do anything about. That's Huntington's true. disease. No, there's no evidence for it I at mean, all. that's where CRISPR technology and the genetic modification is going to come in because that one locus on chromosome 4 is the cause of the most devastating disease where a uh, person with this disease in their 30s, they know they're going to about to get it. They know that their brain is being devastated. They know that they're going to lose their cognitive capacity and function everything very quickly. That's not going to be affected by lifestyle. There are many diseases like that, like sickle cell and others, and I mean, dozens and dozens that's more. That's true, yeah. Uh, so that's why we have to approach it on, uh, from both levels. Absolutely. So for some of the listeners um, who are not quite aware of the evidence on the prevention side, I think this would be a good opportunity to give them a rundown, a brief overview and a summary of what we know so far that has worked uh, as far as prevention of uh, dementia and specifically Alzheimer's and vascular dementia is concerned. And also for people who do have the beginnings of cognitive impairment, what is the evidence of lifestyle and the day-to-day -day, um, activities on slowing down that rate of cognitive decline. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, I think the, the most important thing people should know that prevention is definitely possible. It's powerful. We think as much as 90% can be prevented, but I want to make sure that we come back to that 90%. We're extrapolating. And extrapolation is not absolute science, not even close. Uh, so take it for that. Extrapolation is somewhat of a um, um, based on, on data. I mean, the data that has come to us is as much as 60% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. But we say 90% because we think that um, the, uh, the interventions that have been measured are subpar. If somebody lives a optimal, perfectly optimal life with the exercise, ex a significant amount of exercise, a profoundly clean diet, and we'll talk about that, what, what, what the data shows, um, uh, stress management, um, perfect sleep and significant cognitive activity, uh, no alcohol or extremely minimal alcohol, no cigarettes, no loss of hearing, uh, great social interaction. Uh, by the way, none of us live that perfectly, but let's say if we do, the genetic picture, as well as the rest of the data shows that as much as 90% should be preventable. So it's extrapolation. 
but there's good evidence that it's pointed to that direction. But that, what I just described is really un, un, untenable, unreachable for most to do all of that perfectly. The nutrition part means basically as, as clean as possible, almost eliminating saturated fat, almost eliminating all sugars or processed carbs. Yeah, I think I, I, w- I want to emphasize when we talk about sugars, what we mean is refined yeah, carbohydrates. Refined carbohydrates. I actually am shying away from the word clean. I don't like the word clean because it connotes unclean, like everything else yes, is unclean. Yes. So uh, the evidence so far, like you said, shows that specific foods are not as important. I think looking at a dietary pattern is very important and the dietary pattern that has been associated with lower risk of Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline is the MIND diet, which is the Mediterranean dash intervention for neurodegenerative delay. I always mess up that acronym, but the MIND diet has been associated with, like you said earlier, 53% lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And and most of these are plant predominant. Now, we, I mean, we're plant, we're hopefully plant-based. We're plant-based. but but we will never make the argument that that's the only way to be fully healthy. Um, uh, we are still figuring out what is the perfect diet, but we won't because that's that eventually that's going to be personal, isn't it? Um, everybody's epigenetics and 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 uh, proteomics and everything else exactly. is going to determine that. But the more plants you eat, the less processed food you eat, um, um, that that's better. Uh, the more water you drink. Uh, the the more um, uh, whole grains you have, uh, that that's better. That's it. So we don't have to get into the uh, diet wars. Uh, we are always transparent as far as why we are whole food plant based. It's yeah, it's natural uh, health, and we we've, we've definitely benefited from it. But uh, it's also other reasons, and we don't want to bring the other reasons into the science. Right, and that's critical. There seems to be an entire battlefield. Uh, and, and social media, and it's mostly about ideologies. And keep the science to science, keep the ideology, and you can fight both of those, but but separate them so it's clean. Exactly. Um, exactly. And then exercise. Oh, my goodness. How important is exercise? I, I mean, we think that you can't survive without exercise. That's and I, true. And I, mean, I don't mean just meandering. Just you have to push yourself. Over and over again, whether it's for longevity, whether it's for cardiovascular disease, whether it's for cancer, whether it's for um, osteoarthritis and musculoskeletal issues, exercise over and over again comes on top as far as intervention is concerned. Yes. um, I think you and I need to really emphasize that exercise is very different from just being physically active and walking around the house. That's good. Yes. Getting your steps is wonderful, but really pushing yourselves, you know, these explosive exercises where you're building muscle and where you're getting tired and you're increasing your rate and you're improving your VO2 max. Those are the kind of activities and physical activities that truly generate the right environment for the brain to reconnect for neuroplasticity to occur and for the brain to be able to get rid of all of the byproducts and create a, 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 an optimal environment for it to grow and function better. Especially vascular health. I mean, the vascular health of the most vascular organ in the body, the brain, is singularly connected to LDL, yes, LDL, and especially exercise and significant exercise. Now, the type of exercise is aerobic and anaerobic. Yeah, weight training, leg strength is very important for multiple reasons. Um, uh, but aerobic is extremely important. How much intensity, all that. People are making all kinds of claims that we just listened to a 
podcast and and the, these people who are making all kinds of leaps of as far as the um, uh, lactic acid levels and things of that nature. I mean, okay, there's some little paper here, some papers there, but we're still figuring that out. Just exercise. Exercise enough to get tired every day if you can, rest the day. Um, and then sleep. Those seven to eight hours are the most important seven to eight hours of your day. Yeah, I think we, we probably need to dedicate an entire episode on what actually happens in the brain when we sleep and yes. uh, the influence of our day-to-day -day activities, our food, uh, our thought processes on sleep and sleep patterns. Um, so many important activities and so many important processes occur during the deeper stages of sleep. And I think it's important for us to prioritize. It's also the hardest one to change, isn't it? And it's also the least studied. Because what they've looked at is sleep apnea, which is very important. A lot of people have sleep apnea who are not being diagnosed and they're damaging their brain. And it's treatable, easily treatable. But beyond sleep apnea, achieving optimal sleep uh, um, without medication if possible. We're not against medication there as well for short periods. But without medication, there hasn't been enough good Agreed. studies. Agreed. But we have some data. We'll have a complete conversation about that. And then mental activity challenging your brain, continuously pushing your brain around your purpose, around things that, that, that mean something to you. The data there is, is, is absolutely remarkable and, and kind of lovely. It's, it's because it, it shows the resilience, the true resilience of this brain. I am so fascinated by cognitive activity. There was a time, uh, I, I would say two years ago, when I was all gung-ho about nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. But over the last year, after reading, um, you know, some of the work that has come out from different universities on the concept of neuroplasticity and cognitive reserve and cognitive resilience, I am a big believer of the importance of building cognitive resilience, especially for women. Yes. Especially for women, because I think it is understudied in women. To be honest with you, women in general have not been a major part of clinical trials and research studies for. Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline in general, but especially when it comes to their cognitive reserve, that hasn't really been studied well. Correct. We're just beginning some studies on um, uh, hormones and their effect and, and, uh, on uh, women's brains. Imagine that, a major element in the lifespan of women that has not been studied uh, as it pertains to brain health. We're just getting some papers, and, and we, we, but, but there's so much more detail to be uh, Absolutely. And all of these things do matter, uh, even in the context of these new drugs. They matter profoundly um, because um, these drugs are not going to affect, definitely not going to affect vascular dementia, which we think is bigger than the 20% that is purported, 20% of all dementias. And it's much more common. It doesn't affect cognitive decline, which most young people don't even care about because they say, oh, I'm busy and so on. But cognitive decline starts in your 20s and 30s. Take it serious. This is the scaffoldings that hold the infrastructure together and you're seeing some of them fall and you say, oh, it's just normal. But those scaffoldings, as, as more and more of them fall, the building becomes weak and tenuous. And so I tell people, you are at risk in your 20s and 30s, not to scare you, but to empower you because every little thing you do can build that foundation. And by the way, if you start in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and even 50s, that's when you can actually forestall even the amyloid deposition. 
that's when the, the effect will have a permanent consequence that you don't even get to the point of using these drugs potentially. So uh, it's very difficult to motivate young people, but motivate yourself in this way. Those little memory lapses you're having, focus problems, they might be a little bigger than you think. But the flip side of that is, if you start instituting the lifestyle changes that we talk about, especially cognitive activity, exercise, and nutrition, you're actually biohacking, real biohacking, not all these gimmicks of yeah. butter and I, coffee. And I cringed a little bit when you I said know, that. I know, but but, but real <laughs> no, biohacking. I'm joking. No, no, yes. I know, but but because it's much more powerful than Absolutely. those things. In fact, those things are not real. Absolutely. And and you and you will see your focus improving. You'll see your memory improving. You'll see your executive functions and executive speed, speed of processing improving. Several studies have shown that how fast you process, which none of us talk about this, and we should have a complete session on this, focus and executive speed, uh, processing speed. We can affect this and that has consequences. How fast and quick, how attentive you are has an effect on your daily activities, whether you're in your business or you're running your company or whatever you're doing. It has a day-to-day -day effect on that. And it's not some weird biohacking vitamin concoctions or food concoctions. It's just simple, clean, or no, not clean. Optimal. Optimal nutrition, <laughs> optimal exercise, and challenging your brain. That's yes. it. Those things, nobody can charge you for those. I love this so much. All right. So, so we talked about the medication. We stepped back today. We looked at the bigger picture. Um, we talked about the importance of addressing these risk factors earlier in life without scaring anyone or causing any fear mongering. Oh, you know what? I just wanted to, I forgot to mention this. Most of the studies are actually focusing more and more during the midlife now. Yes. Because they've realized that um, if they focus on certain interventions or association of vascular risk factors, with, uh, you know, during the later stages of life, the associations have been weaker. And they found out that it is weak because our biology actually changes when we get older. And sometimes, um, the, in, in a very simple way to say, it, the damage has already been done, you know? Correct. So atherosclerosis is a, is a part and parcel of aging. We are, we're definitely, we're all going to have atherosclerosis. We're probably going to, you know, Almost all of us have objective measures of atherosclerosis, but we don't want to die from it. Yes. <laughs> We're going to live with it, but we don't want to die from Correct. it. Correct. Right? So um, changing, say, for example, high cholesterol or addressing insulin resistance later in life when there's already some atherosclerosis in the arteries might not make a huge difference, but it does make a huge difference when it's addressed earlier Correct. in life during midlife. So the, the impact of lifestyle is seen um, prominently during midlife. And I think that in itself is a message. It's a, it's, a, it's a message of hope for all of us to take better care of ourselves in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. I mean, let's take Parkinson's. By the time that the first symptoms of Parkinson's appear, whether it's pill rolling tremor or um, what we call hypomemia or mask faces where the face does not express itself, or little steps, we uh, fancy uh, French word of March. Shuffling, on par. the shuffling, shuffling stepage, yeah, yes. Shuffling or, or, or any of those, or even the first tremors, 80% of dopamine producing cells in, in the main part of dopamine producing area, which is substantia nigra, is gone. 80%. Right, right. 
So we have to start earlier, especially in Parkinson's. I mean, even then we can do a lot. Even lifestyle has an effect on it. We've seen studies on insulin resistance and its effect and on other things. But I want young people to know that start early. It has not just an effect on avoiding disease, but promoting cognitive capacity. Exactly. We all want to have peak brain performance throughout our life and be the best versions of who we are. Correct. Correct. Thank you. Thank you.